Well, it's so good to see all of you this morning. We're in the book of Luke, and we're in chapter 21 this morning. What that means is we're nearing the end. So I know we have a few, a few chapters to go. There's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, but here we are in chapter 21, and it means we're going to soon say goodbye to a good friend. Uh, soon we're going to finish this book. And then uh, just to forecast a little bit, we're going to move to the Old Testament and look at the book of Malachi. So the last book in the Old Testament, and that will lead us through the end of the year and uh, into Advent season. Well, here we are in Luke chapter 21. I'd like to read the chapter to you. I'd, I'd love it if you'd follow along, maybe on your phone or tablet, or uh, if you need a Bible, there's probably one in a seat back in front of you. We'll read Luke chapter 21 together. And then when I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond, thanks be to God. Would you follow along, please, as I read? Luke 21, I'll be reading from the ESV, beginning in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And when they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors of great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be put before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how, are you, how you are to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. 
They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to see him in the temple and to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I'd like to do is pray together and then look into the text. Father, this morning, we want to hear from you. We, we want to know your word. It's supposed to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so lead us this morning in your truth. Teach us. You are the God of our salvation. So we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. After graduating from college, I spent the following two summers working at a Christian camp in Wisconsin. There were hundreds of students each week that would come to this, uh, to this camp, and they would come from all these surrounding states, and they'd assemble for a great week of adventure at this camp. There were games, you know, activities, all the things you can imagine about summer camp. Well, at this particular place, as part of the program each week, they had something called Funny time, funny time, funny time. It was a compilation of lame skits, dad jokes, and goofy music. I, I particularly remember one year they cast me as a dwarf, and I had a poncho on, and, and my name was the man in the Navy poncho. And it was just ridiculous. I thought to myself, what am I doing up here in a blue poncho. It was so bad. I mean, the laughs were so few and far between. <laughs> Instead of funny time, we just called it time. That's what we called it. It was rough. The teens, I mean, if, if these teenagers had access to cabbage and tomatoes, we would have been booed and heckled off of that stage. So this one particular year, we decided to try something different. We decided to try something called comedy sports. Now, 
I'm not sure how to explain it other than to tell you that one part of the act was we would have a few counselors and we would pick them out of the crowd. They would come up on stage and line up on stage in front of these hundreds of of students. And what we would have them do is tell a continuous story. Now, the way it would be set up is we would look to the teenagers, the audience, and we would ask them to give us a few random things like an animal, a place, an object, a person. And so from the crowd, these students would scream out these different things that would have to be included in the continuous story. So maybe we'd get a rhinoceros, a mortuary, a coffee maker, a man with a wooden leg. I don't know. But these random things would come And then there would be someone with a microphone in front of all of these counselors, and we'd start with one, and they'd have to begin the story. And then the microphone would move to another one, and they'd have to continue the story. And supposedly, we were supposed to have a single, ongoing, cohesive story that included all of these prompts. Now, (laughs) sometimes it worked out, and there was a smidge of humor. Most times, you were just left scratching your head wondering how in the world do all of these parts fit together? Now, (laughs) when I read Luke chapter 21, at least on the first take, I'm kind of wondering how all these parts fit together. Is this some sort of continuous story that Jesus is telling us? Are there these random prompts? We've got Jesus, we've got the temple, we've got some pregnant women, a couple copper coins, pestilence. Now tell a story. I mean, is that what's happening in Luke chapter 21? Well, what I want to explain about this chapter and hopefully help you understand is that these various pieces are meant to fit together to tell us an overarching lesson. And that is this. We need to be prepared for the end. Jesus, just think about it for a second. Jesus, since Luke chapter 9, has been approaching Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. He knows exactly what's going to happen when he's in Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to be buried. And three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. He's told this to his disciples. They don't seem to get it. He heads towards Jerusalem. He gets there. Do you remember? He overthrows the money changers' tables. He's teaching there. They're frothing at the mouth. The religious leaders want to kill him, but they can't because of the crowds. Tension is rising. He knows what's going to happen. His end is coming. In the midst of all of that, He wants to prepare his disciples for the end. And so here in this chapter, as we we near the culmination of Christ's crucifixion recorded here in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, you need to be prepared for the end. You need to be. And he does it in this chapter. And so let's see if we can break this down together this morning. I think the first thing that Jesus wants us to understand from this text is that we need to get ready get ready. And you kind of see that in the opening 24 verses, get ready. One of the complexities, and I'll tell you this just right up front, one of the complexities of this chapter is is when you read it, you're not quite sure all the time, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, like something that's near, something that would happen. You know, here's here's Jesus, 30-something A.D., 
Jerusalem will be destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus and all of his troops. So is Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about a future judgment, the end of all things, the eschaton? And the answer is yes. Part of it, he's talking about Jerusalem. And I would suggest to you that he's even speaking about a real example, Jerusalem, that will be destroyed typologically. In other words, it gives us lessons about how to be prepared for the destruction at the end of time, his future and final judgment. So let's see if we can trace this. The opening he's trying to tell us, we need to get ready. And so it starts with this brief account. Like we're wondering, okay, chapter 22, we've got this widow and she puts in some money. We have some rich people. They put in some money. What does this have to do with the whole thing? Well, it's important because he's, he's telling us this account. Luke is recording this account because he wants us to know the state of Israel at this time. In other words, what is the nation like? right now? What are their hearts like when it comes to God? And so he kind of has this contrast that we're able to see in a vivid picture. It's in a picture of people bringing their offerings in the temple. In these first few verses, you find that there's rich people, and they're going to bring their gifts. Verse number one, And I kind of picture, this isn't the case, it's not in the Bible, but this is how my imagination works. I kind of picture one of those charity donation checks. Have you seen those? They're huge. Like you're holding the check and you're walking really proudly like this in front of everybody. Like look at the size of this gift. Has my name on it. And you can almost imagine the rich people bringing their big charity donation checks. And they have a few of their servants out in front stringing red ribbons and cutting it. And here comes the rich person with their big check through the temple. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. That's kind of how I picture verse, verse number one. Here are these rich people putting their gifts into the offering box. But then we're introduced to someone else. It's this woman who's almost overlooked. I imagine her slinking in the background between these colonnades in the court of women. She approaches one of the 13 wooden box with trumpet-shaped bronze funnels. And she reaches into her cloak and grabs these two. They're very small, like you can Google these. They're about this big. These little tiny lepta, they were called. They're worth less than a penny together. These two tiny little coins, mites, they're translated sometimes. And she slips them into the box and slips away unnoticed. Jesus says in verse number three, take a look at the text. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. In other words, they're walking around with lots of wealth. They're putting in their donation wondering, can we call this the Rice Eccles Temple now? Do you think we could call this the Ken Garf Worship Center now? No, 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 no. They donated out of their great wealth. He says, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. In other words, when it came to giving, Jesus is telling us, God sees more than the portion you give. He sees the proportion 
of what you give. And here is this woman, and he's saying, God notices more than what's given. God notices what's left. She gave all she had to live on. She was a woman of faith who entrusted all she had to God. She was, I mean, you put it this way, she was all in, everything. I mean, she, she didn't hold anything back. There was no partition. There's no hiding. She's not keeping. She's not hoarding. It's just like, you have it all, God. I mean, Paul will later put it this way for us. You need to be a living sacrifice. Your whole life given to God. That's the life of faith. All that you are, all that you have. You just open your hands and say, whatever you want, God, I entrust it to you. And here, Jesus is saying, that woman right there, that's the picture of faith. Now, that was a rarity in Israel at the time. You see, the spiritual state of the nation was bleak. The scribes probably represented the greater part of Israel, the greater part of the religious vibe at the time. They would have been described by these scribes in the previous few verses. So back up to the previous chapter and look at chapter 20, verse 45. In the hearing of all the people, Jesus said this to his disciples, verse 46, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They'll receive greater condemnation. The scribes represented the greater part of the religious demographic at that time. These were the religious roosters proliferating hypocrisy through Israel. Beware of these people, Jesus said. Many in Israel didn't follow the model of the widow. Instead, they were devouring the assets of the widow and promoting selfish gain. That was more the state of the nation. They weren't ready to give their all to God. They wouldn't even listen to the Son of God when he was in their midst. In fact, by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, there's only a remnant of real worshipers. This stark contrast between the scribes and the widow, the rich and the poor here, depict the spiritual state of Israel at the time. We see this, as the idea, this idea as the text continues to unfold. In the very next verse, verse number five, what are people doing in verse number five? In verse number five, they're ooing and eyeing at the temple. Oh, wow. Look at how nicely it's adorned. Look at the noble stones. Look at the amazing offerings. Oh, this is beautiful. Do you realize at this time, Herod had put, <laughs> Herod had engraved this, this large vine over one of the particular entrance doors of the temple and rich people would come and they would make their donations. These rich Jews would make their donations and they would decorate the vine with gold leaves or with golden clusters of grapes. And it was kind of like today, like when you make a donation, you get your name on a brick. You know, that's what these Jews were doing. And, and so here in verse number five, you see, oh, some are speaking of the temple, how adorned it was with noble stones and these, these amazing offerings that people give. They're worried about the temporal and the material, and it's almost as if they're blind to the spiritual and the eternal. 
They don't get it. You honor me with your lips. All these people gathered in a temple. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Now, at this point, I just want to rewind the story for a moment. In the last chapter, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus told a parable of the tenants. They had a vineyard, if you remember. It was leased out to them. The owner was away. The owner sends his servants, and they beat the servants. They shame the servants. One after another, the owner sends, until finally the owner says, I'm going to send whom? My son. And so the son comes to those tenants, and they take him outside of the vineyard, and they kill him. Then Jesus says, what will the owner do? He will come and destroy those tenants. Luke chapter 20, verse 16. And what I want you to see is that's exactly what Jesus is laying out in our present context. Israel was ripe for judgment. Servant after servant after servant, prophet after prophet after prophet had been sent to the nation and they shamed them, they rejected them, they beat them and they killed them and finally God sends his only son. Here he is in the city of David and he will be taken out and killed. Israel is ripe for judgment and Jesus is going to tell these people that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Just like the owner said, owner will come and destroy these tenants. Look at verse number six of our text this morning. Look what Jesus says. As for these things that you see, you want to ooh and ah at this temple? Oh, look at the gifts and look at the beauty. You want to, you want to do that? The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, the disciples hear that and they say, well, Jesus, when is this going to happen? I mean, what are the signs that we should look for to know that this is about to take place? Verse seven. Are we going to see wars? Are we going to feel earthquakes? Are there going to be famines or cosmic anomalies that are going to be the signs that we should look for? Jesus adjusts their focus in the text. And instead of seeking when the judgment is coming... He wants them to simply get ready. That's what he does. He doesn't tell them away. He's like, well, on the month of, no, he doesn't do that. He says, I just want you to get ready. And so in verse number eight, he tells them, you need to get ready for deception. I'm not telling you when, I'm just telling you to get ready. Get ready for deception, verse eight. See that you are not led astray or see that you're not deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, or the time is at hand. Do not go after them. I mean, basically, Jesus is warning his followers about deceivers who are going to try to lead people off track. Do you realize that between the time Jesus spoke those words and the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD, there were people who came claiming to be the Messiah. Exactly what Jesus said here did come about. It's recorded by the historian, the Jewish historian named Josephus. He records how in AD 46, just a decade after Jesus said this, in AD 46, a man named Theodos, 
rose up. He was a self-proclaimed liberator of the Jews. He promised that he would go down to the Jordan River and lift his hands like Joshua did and the river would part and people should follow him because he was the great deliverer. A few years after that, AD 59, an Egyptian Jew, again, Josephus records the history of this, an Egyptian Jew rose up and led a mass movement down the Mount of Olives. He was saying, the walls are gonna crumble in front of me and we are gonna take the city. I am the one to liberate you. Follow me, the time is at hand. Exactly what Jesus said here came to pass. But Jesus is saying, listen, when people rise up and say those things, don't follow after them. They're imposters. They're liars. They're messianic pretenders. Be forewarned. There are going to be all kinds of deceivers out there who are going to promise rescue and deliverance. And I want to tell you something. The same thing happens today. There are all kinds of people out there, very popular podcasts. Listeners in the millions of people who will promise to be your deliverer. Listen to what I say. Oh, I've got the secret sauce. This is going to fix your life. Oh, deliverance is here. Jesus said there will be many deceivers. There's going to be gurus and specialists, people who claim to have special insight, famous figures. Don't follow them. They're not Jesus. We're supposed to, number one, get ready for deception. He goes on in this text. He says, get ready for calamity. Verses 9 through 11, get ready for calamity. There are going to be fearful events leading up to God's judgment. Here he's talking about Jerusalem, but remember, projecting it forward, there's going to be calamitous events that are going to, that are going to come before his, his final judgment of all things. Here he talks about prior to AD 70, there's going to be conflicts between nations. There's going to be natural disasters like earthquakes, famines, and plagues. Catch what Jesus is saying here. He's not telling you, now pull out a piece of paper, draw a chart, calculate the details. That's not what he's trying to do. You, do you realize when it comes to prophecy, there have been people who've been trying to track earthquakes, there are people trying to write down long lists of wars that have happened, all this. He's not really telling you to do that. Instead, he's telling you to get ready for calamity. Get ready for conflicts and disasters. There are going to be devastating events that will go on for a bit. He's like, there's going to be international distress. Get ready for that. The end will not be at once. Verse number nine. In other words, prior to God's judgment, you just need to get ready for deception, calamity. Here's the third thing he says to get ready for. He says, get ready for persecution. This is in verse 12. And then again in verses 16 and 17. Take a look in your Bible at verse number 12. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. He goes on and says, look, look at verse number 16. You will be delivered up by, by even your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, verse 17. Jesus is saying this, get ready for persecution. You're gonna be indicted in the synagogues as lawbreakers. You'll be sent to prisons. You'll be seized. You'll be mistreated. Get ready for this. 
You know, it's fascinating. There are parts of the world where these sort of things go on for Christians. They are imprisoned. They are persecuted. And I, I just think sometimes they look back at the West and some of the ease that we experience, and I wonder if they pray for us. You say, pray for us? Yeah, I wonder if they pray for us because perhaps we're not ready. Maybe we're not ready for when persecution comes. Jesus says, get ready. You're gonna be the undesirables one day. You're gonna be hated and hunted. Jesus foretold here these things to his disciples. And in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem, prior to that, these very things happened. When you read the book of Acts, what do you, what do you discover? You discover these, these two disciples, Peter and John, they're preaching in Jesus' name. They're going to get beaten for the name of Christ. They're going to be imprisoned for the name of Christ. Just, just as he said, you're going to find a guy named uh, Stephen, and he's going to be killed for the name of Christ. You're going to get to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and it says this, there arose in that day a great persecution against the church. Just what Jesus said here, would take place. He's trying to tell his followers to get ready for deception, calamity, persecution. But I love this part. Look at verse number 15 for a second. Look at verse 15. This is what Jesus says. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So he's saying this. In the most difficult seasons of your discipleship, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you my spirit and he's going to enable you and empower you to be a witness for me. In other words, the last get ready in the text here is get ready for evangelism. Yes, there's going to be deception, calamity, and persecution, but that's going to be the very time that you're going to be able to speak my name. In other words, times of difficulty, Jesus is saying, are times of opportunity. Times of difficulty are times of opportunity. It's as though crisis becomes the crack through which God's word can advance. I just think that sometimes we get to a spot in life that's very hard. We're suffering in some way. We're going through a deep trial of some sort. And maybe our natural response is to retract, to quiet up to hide in a hole. I'm hurting. This is hard. Jesus says, actually, the difficulty of your trial, the depth of your suffering becomes an opportunity for you to proclaim my name. Do you know what this world really needs to see? They don't need to see you suffer and retract. Anybody can do that. They need to see you suffer and proclaim the name of Jesus. That's what he says right here. Verse 13. Look, look at verse 13. You've got to see this and underline it in your Bible if you like to underline it. Underline it in the Pew Bible if you want. I don't care. This will be your opportunity. Do you see it there? This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. And listen, isn't he faithful to do that? Again, I'm just thinking, you get to Acts chapter 7, there's a guy there named Stephen. He's going to be the first martyr of the Christian church that's recorded. But he's there, he's surrounded, he's hated. 
people vehemently want to kill him, and he just proclaims the name of Jesus until the stones pummel him to death. He just proclaims the name of Jesus. I just think about Paul. I mean, continue to trace through the story of the book of Acts. Paul is going to stand before people like Festus and Felix and Agrippa, and every time he's in front of them, what does he do? He just proclaims the name of Jesus. That's what he does. I was fast-forwarding through church history just thinking about uh, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. It's 1521. He's standing before this antagonistic court. The whole situation, it's like a bench clamp that's being ratcheted tighter and tighter on Luther. He's under extreme pressure to recant his affirmations of the gospel. This is what he says. This is what he says. Since your most serene majesty and your highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I'll give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof of the Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very texts I have cited, and if my judgment is not this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his own conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Man, they wanted to kill him but they couldn't. I just think there are going to be these moments of high pressure or deep pain in which what God wants you to do is speak for him. That's what he wants you to do. You say, well, I better get out a piece of paper and write down what I should say. No. He says, I'll help you in that moment. I'll help you in that moment. And so he does. Now, this part of the text is specifically Jesus talking to his disciples concerning the impending doom that would come upon Jerusalem. Remember the city, he's like, I I would be like a mother hen covering you and he weeps for Jerusalem because they reject him and he knows that judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem. But I think Jesus is typologically teaching all his disciples, including us, about future judgment the sort that's associated with his second coming. And that's why I think he talks about his second coming in this same context here. I think that's why it's included. So instead of it being like confusing, I want you to see it as a typological projection. He's showing us a case study here that helps us learn about the future. He wants his people, not just those in between 30 and 70 AD. He wants his people, not just them to be ready, He wants us to get ready. He wants our readiness to be improved. um, Some of you know I'm a reserve chaplain for the Air Force, and so I shave my beard and I put on the uniform and fly. Right now I'm stationed at the Air Force Academy, so I fly there and serve my duty days. And there are times in the past 15 years that I've served that I've gone to do my duty days and the base has what's called an exercise. An exercise on a military installation is kind of like a war game. It comes by surprise. It's this hypothetical situation that's imposed across the whole installation, and you have to respond to it as though it's a real-world threat. 
Now, I want to tell you, these aren't really fun. Uh, they intrude on the daily operations. They kind of slow your normal everyday work progress down. But they're necessary. They're necessary because they improve our readiness. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a case study. But he's doing it to improve our readiness. So in other words, the first part of our text is all about getting ready. But that's not where he leaves it. He says, get ready, but then he moves on in the text, I think, to communicate this. Get ready and live faithfully. There's going to be these difficulties. There's going to be calamitous times. There's going to be wars, and there's going to be chaos. You're going to be hated, and some of you will be persecuted, imprisoned, or killed. But you need to live faithfully all the way to the end. And I see this in the last section of Luke chapter 21, specifically verses 29 through 38. 29 through 38. Notice in verse 29 that Jesus tells a parable. It says, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree, and actually at all the trees. You know, look at all the trees. He's telling this parable about a fig tree, about trees. And he's basically saying this. When you see leaves grow on the fig tree, you know that summer's coming. I mean, it's not hard. Like, you, you, you all could do this. Finally, the 900 inches of snow up at Alta melts. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I just talked to a friend at the gym. He just went skiing this last week. I'm like, oh, man, we're back at skiing already. Well, maybe the snow melts and things warm up a little bit and the days get a little bit longer and you look out your window and you see a tree and the buds come out on the tree and soon they open up and you have fresh leaves and when that happens, you kind of know like, Whew, summer's coming, summer's coming. He's like, you, you, know, you don't have to be a genius to see those things. There are certain signs in nature that tell us that summer's coming. He says, so there are certain signs that will take place on the earth there will be these signatory events that will forecast the consummation of Christ's kingdom. Remember, the kingdom starts with the king, but it's not consummated until his return. He's saying there are going to be some signatory events that tell you the return is near. The return is near. Verse number 32, he says, as a matter of fact, the generation who sees these signs, they will not pass away until all has taken place. So until then, I mean, here's kind of the implicit instruction. So until then, live faithfully. And, and where I get that from is verse number 34, verse number 36. Look at verse 34. Notice what he says. He says, watch yourselves. In other words, stay alert. Uh, look at verse number 36. Stay awake at all times. I mean, you kind of get this sense, like, be vigilant. Guard your heart. Be aware. Stay faithful. Okay, we're supposed to watch out and be alert, stay awake. But what is it we're supposed to watch out for? I mean, what's this red alert all about? Well, in verse number 34, notice what he warns us about. Verse 34. Stay awake, stay alert, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day, meaning the day of Christ's return, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. 
for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. The danger here is that as we wait for the Lord's return, we end up getting distracted by the cares of this life and stop living faithfully. That's what he's saying here. Here you are, you're waiting for this to happen, but you're getting distracted by the cares of this life. Have you ever been in a place where you're supposed to be paying attention, you're supposed to be focused, but inevitably over time you get distracted? Some of you students are here, you're like, I've been to school for two weeks and I'm staring out the window now. You know, I'm distracted. I remember when I lived in Texas, it was a, there was a very short time of my life that I decided to try hunting was not a very good hunter. I have these vivid memories, though, of getting all of my supplies. In Texas, there was a lot of leased land. It means you could pay money to go hunt there, but I was cheap, and so I just tried to hunt on, um, on government land that was open for anybody. But what that meant is you had to take these long treks. So here I am, I've got like waders on and my gun and I got a little seat to sit on and all my stuff, and I'm like walking like a mile down the Pease River near Wichita Falls, Texas, and I'm like walking down early in the morning in the dark, stumbling through little bits of water, trying to make my way there, and I finally get like a mile, mile and a half down this river, find my spot I'm going to hunt in, set up my stuff, sit on my little, you know, bucket thing, put my, my gun on my lap, and I sit there, and I'm like laser focused. I mean, I hear everything. I see everything for a little while. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm so vigilant and ready for like the first half hour, you know? And then I'm bored, you know? I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what I could be getting done. And then, and then I'm pulling out my phone kind of silently with the, you know, with the light down dim, you know, so the deer don't see it, you know? <laughs> Checking my, my phone and I'm like looking at the weeds around me and you know, I'm like, so bad. I missed more deer than I shot. I, um, this one, I, I went with friends once to go uh, turkey hunting, totally fell asleep on the bank. All these turkey go by me. <laughs> My friend's like, you didn't get one of those? And I'm like, what? You know, like what? I totally fell asleep. J Jesus is worried that that's what we're going to do. We're going to fall asleep. We're going to get distracted. We're going to miss it. And so he says here, the cares of this world, you're weighed down with things like dissipation and drunkenness. And so what he has going on here is some of you might be distracted inadvertently, like the cares of this world just begin to burden you down. You're not alert. You, you kind of start digging in and settling in, make this life your ultimate home. You focus your goals and ambitions on the here and now, and you're no longer thinking about his return. That can happen to us, even inadvertently. Like, for instance, maybe you went through this whole last week and you never thought about the Lord's return. It, it, we just get busy. Things just happen. We get distracted. It can happen inadvertently. It can happen purposefully, though, too. Where he talks about dissipation and drunkenness, he's talking about partying, carousing, drunkenness, just numbing yourself, forgetting intentionally, distracting yourself on purpose, 
going after the pleasures of this world. And in doing that, you detach yourself from the reality that Christ is coming back. And maybe you think to yourself, I'm trying to detach myself from the pain or from the difficulty or from the things I'm going through. But actually, you're detaching yourself from so much more. In your drunkenness, in your dissipation, in your carousing, in your partying, you're no longer remembering reality. And the reality is, Christ could come back at any time, like a trap, suddenly. And you're not ready. That's what he's getting at here. Get ready and live faithfully until he comes. Wake up and watch out lest Christ's coming startles you like an unwelcomed alarm clock after a long night of partying or like an alert on your phone that says your plane is now boarding and you're in the wrong terminal. It comes upon you suddenly and you're not prepared. My friends, here's the truth. No one will be found accidentally faithful on that last day. You're not going to just somehow, oh, oh, wow, that's amazing. I was faithful. No, that's not going to happen that way. Living in light of the Lord's return has to become a way of life that you pursue vigilantly. Watch out, stay alert, be faithful. You have to pursue this intentionally. I love in this text, like, like we could leave here like, yes, I'm going to remember the return of the Lord. How in the world are you going to do that this week? And you didn't do it last week. So how are you going to do it this week? Well, Jesus tells us, thankfully, he tells us in verse 36, here's how you can remember his return this week. I mean, here's how you can live faithfully this week and be alert and be ready. Here's how it is. Notice verse 36, praying. Do you see it there? praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. We must continue in prayer. If you want to live faithfully until the return of Christ, then you have to continue in prayer. Why is that? Because when we start praying, we recognize our need for God's help and God's strength. We, I mean, haven't you experienced this? When you start praying, you realign your focus? Like all of a sudden your heart is tuned back in to spiritual realities, to eternal things. When you pray, God will rekindle your hope and your expectation. And so we pray, we pray that we'll escape the judgment reserved for the wicked. We pray that we will be the ones standing because he has held us fast, that we'll be standing at the day of our Lord's coming. I don't know about you, but when I, I mean, this last week, I studied this text, and I'm just struck with my need for prayer. Like, Lord, help me this week to be realigned. Give me these reality checks in prayer this week. Lord, refocus me more regularly. Help me to believe the truth about eternity, and then live that out. And so here in this text, what Jesus is teaching his followers is this. Get ready. Live faithfully. And here's the last thing. It's because he's going to return. It's because he's coming again. So get ready, live faithfully, because Jesus is coming again. And that is described in verses 25 through 28. It's the last section we'll look at this morning, verses 25 through 28. And it's where Jesus is talking about his second coming. Notice verse 26. Let me start there. Verse 26 
uh, and 27. He's going to talk about following astronomical anomalies and oceanic turbulence. Verse 26, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they, the whole world, will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, somewhere, maybe off to the side in your Bible or a bottom footnote or in a center little column, there's probably a cross-reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's a clear allusion to what Daniel had prophesied. Daniel 7, verse 13 says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So what do we have here? Well, Luke is telling us about the return of Christ, King Jesus coming back in brilliant glory. It's something that will be unprecedented, something that will be unmistakable. I mean, something that will be glorious and majestic without comparison. Have you ever seen people who are amazed at something they see in the sky? I mean, someone taps you, look out the window, there's a double rainbow. I mean, they're, they're ooh. Maybe, maybe you don't do that anymore. Okay. Oh, look, look out there. You go down I-15. You, 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 look, you look to the east. Oh, look, look over there. It's one of those hot air balloon-like conventions. You see all these big hot air balloons. Oh, wow. Maybe it's fireworks. We don't do those anymore. Never mind. <laughs> Maybe it's an air show up at, up at the base. Maybe it's Elon Musk's Starlink. Has anyone seen that? Just put your hand in the Come on, put your hand up. Let me just see. I saw it, didn't know what it was, thought we were being invaded. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, what is this? It was crazy. Have you ever seen people ooh and ah? Maybe it's balloons. Maybe it's rainbows, fireworks, air shows, Starlink. Maybe it's the drone show we had right out here. No, there was nobody ooh and ahing over that. <laughs> no, it wasn't that. People will stand amazed at sights in the sky, but let me tell you something. There's nothing that will be compared to the return of Christ. With, without comparison, it will cause people to stagger. Their breath will be taken away. They will stumble, stumble and shudder and stutter at the sight of this. It will come, it says, with power and great glory, verse number 27. It's as though the one, Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, is going to break through the clouds. One day, the one who the Bible describes is wrapped in unapproachable light will blaze through the heavens. It will be a Shekinah or a glory cloud, and the earth will be awestruck. That's what Luke is saying here in this text. And it's going to come suddenly. Verse 34 says, suddenly like a trap. And think of a trap being sprung quickly. It'll come suddenly like a trap. It's not something that we're going to ease into. You know, like a person going into a cold pool. They go like inch by inch. I'm coming, I'm coming. Don't splash me, you know. And it takes your mom like a half hour to get into the pool. You know what that's like? It, it's not going to be like that. I would suggest it's more like the coming of a baby 
Yes, you've known about it. You've heard about it, but then suddenly your water breaks and it's here. It's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> You're going about your business. I mean, hopefully his business. You're going about his business. And suddenly he appears. Now what's fascinating about this last section in the text is that on one hand, there are descriptions of cosmic judgment I mean, look at verse 26 for a second. I mean, look at the judgment. People are fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. When he comes back, it's like people are terrified of the cataclysmic judgment associated with his return. But on the other hand, it's like this consummated redemption. You see it in verse number 28. In verse 28, Jesus is being like, listen, if you're my follower, then raise your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. I mean, in other words, you're not fainting or shuddering. You're not fearful and collapsing. No, raise your head, rejoice. Your redemption is here. He's coming back. And so here, what you have is both destruction and deliverance mingled together in the same event. Some of you are like, how does this work? What? Okay, a poor illustration, but one that might help anyways. A mom is heading out to the store. She tells her two boys to clean their rooms. One does it, the other doesn't. When mom gets home, the boy who neglected to clean his room is anxious, perhaps even fearful of getting grounded. The other boy, however, is hopeful that his mom will come check his clean room and give him a treat that she bought at the store. One event, the mom comes home. Two different responses going on. The return of Christ is one event, but two different responses. Some have fear and anxiety, but for believers, they will have joy and optimism. I just wonder what your response will be when he returns. You know, people often talk about being ready to meet their maker. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? My friend, I hope you know him. I hope you're living for him. I hope you long for him. I hope, I hope you're ready for him so you can rejoice in him when he comes. I picture a woman with her kids standing at the Salt Lake City Airport and she has this big sign that says, welcome home, I love you. The kids have little American flags. Their dad's been deployed for more than a year and they've waited and they've longed and they've prayed for his return. And then far off, down the terminal, they recognize his gait. You know how you can notice people by how they walk? And as he gets closer, they see his face, and the kids begin jumping up and down. It's daddy. It's daddy, they shout. Wife, she has tears running down her cheeks. She whispers to herself, he's finally here. The joy of that reunion is not so much about what he brings. It's about him. He has returned. And that is cause for rejoicing 
And so Jesus looks and he says, get ready. Live faithfully because I am coming again. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our heads and close our eyes and quiet our hearts, we simply want to reflect on your word and respond to you. Lord, my prayer is that each person in here would be ready for your return. Maybe that means there are some who are just coming to know who you are, that you're the eternal son of God who died in the place of sinners to pay our penalty so that we could be forgiven and have life eternal. Maybe some people are just coming to understand that, but they haven't yet turned their life over to you. They, they haven't started a relationship with you. Maybe they've had religion, but they really wouldn't call it a relationship. Well, then they're not ready. So Lord, I pray, I pray that if there's someone here who needs to get ready, that they would turn from their sin right there in their chair, just in their heart, to say, God, forgive me of my sin. And that they would trust in you. God, here's my whole life. Save me, deliver me, rescue me. That they would just do that right there in their chair. So that they would be ready for your return. I wonder here in this room, however, if there are believers, but maybe they've been distracted. Maybe they've grown dull to the fact that you're going to return the cares of this world or maybe even dissipation or drunkenness, partying, intentional, numbing. Lord, you're calling us back to live faithfully and be ready for your return. And so help us to turn from those things and instead embrace prayer. Help us to be people of prayer, praying that you would strengthen us while we wait and prepare us for your return. I wonder if some of you have friends or family members who need to hear about Jesus. When you think about the return, you think about a limited amount of time, those who don't yet know Christ. And perhaps what God is doing in your heart this morning is just stirring you to share the good news. This is an opportunity to proclaim his name. Lord, help us this morning by your spirit through your grace, change us. Help us to be ready for your return. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.